We've been talking about the Trinity and we're talking about Jewish ways to uh, address these uh, passages where they talk about multiple persons or characters in place of God or as manifestations of God. And we're talking about the Jewish angel of the Lord in a sense that is Metatron. Now we're talking about the angel of Hashem uh, that comes up in the Bible. So if you look at, at the Malach of, of Adonai, uh, he appears in Genesis 16, 7 through 14, um, to Hagar when she's in the desert. He appears to Abraham and refers to God in the first person. Uh, that's the one where they say that he was one of the three angels, that God was one of the three angels. Uh, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2 through 4, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame, and God speaks from the and God speaks to Moses from the flame. In Numbers 22-38, the angel of the Lord meets the prophet Balaam on the road. In verse 38, Balaam identifies the angel who spoke to him as delivering the word of God. The angel of the Lord appears to Israel in Judges chapter 2, verse 1-3. Also, he appears to Gideon in Judges 6, 11-23. The angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and his wife. Uh, in verse 16, uh, differentiates himself from God. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord, or unto Manoah. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, the angel of the Lord pleads with the Lord to have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. In Zechariah chapter 3, Verse 4, the angel of the Lord takes away the sins of the high priest Joshua. Again, it's a few verses, like, okay, there's 10 verses that talk about the angel of the Lord. So how is that that the angel of the Lord could be Jesus or some type of God himself? There's also the angel of God, that's Malach Elohim, which occurs 12 times. Genesis 31, 11, the angel of God calls out to Jacob in a dream. Tells him, I am the God of Bethel. In Exodus 14, 19, the angel of God leads the camp of Israel and also follows behind them with the pillar of fire. Judges 13, 9, the angel of God approached his wife. The same one about Manoah. In addition, there are mentions of God sending an angel. In Exodus 23, Exodus 33, Numbers 20, 1 Chronicles 21, and 2 Chronicles 32. Again, if you take this idea that it's all uh, straight up from God, then there's no nuances. If you have the idea that there was multiple authors, then you can have one one person says the angel of God. Some people say the angel of the Lord. The other person says, you know, just God. So you just have different approaches on how to share the same situation or the same experience. In the Catholic Encyclopedia, they have some stuff about the angel of the Lord being Jesus. So let's, according to Hugh Pope, he writes, quote, the earlier fathers going by the letter of the text in Septuagint, I intend that if it was God himself who appeared as the giver of the law to Moses, it was not unnatural then for Tertullian, one of the church fathers, to regard such manifestations in light of precludes the incarnation, and most of the Eastern fathers follow the same line of thought. So they thought that it was 
Jesus appearing before he had incarnated. Uh, Pope quotes the view of Theodoret that this angel was probably Christ. Quote, the only begotten son, the angel of the great council. End quote. In contrast to the red view with the opposite view of the Latin Father Jerome Augustine, very great that it was no more than an angel. So even the church fathers, some of them thought that it was just an angel, but there was some church fathers and then there's other church fathers that felt different. So they call it a Christophany. But in the Jewish view, we're talking about Metatron being um, representative of God and there are books that are what Christians would call intertestamental, the books that are in between, ways that people have tried to make sense of these apparitions of either angels or representatives of God and intermediaries. And if those have the same value or authority as they're being given by, by the Christian world, uh, and if they're related somehow to Jesus or the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the intertestamental books Testamental books or apocryphal books are the Wisdom of Solomon. You know, they would take a passage from the Hebrew. And when they would translate it to the Greek, it would change um, a little bit or when translated to Aramaic. The Pseudepigrapha collection is, is also part of those documents. And in Dead Sea Scrolls, there are uh, many uh, passages in relation to Michael or different messiahs or your Melchizedek. So in in the Drashic text, they have a lot of negative views in relation to um, to the, the two powers or this idea that God has a a, a co a creator or co viceroy um, deity or member of, of the Godhead. I really don't like the term Godhead. It's really weird to me. I'm going to find a definition of the Godhead for you guys and see what you think. So you hear that in English, Godhead, Godhead, we, the Godhead, and it just seems like foreign to, to the Bible to use that term. So Godhead, divine nature, according to Webster, divine nature of essence. So is, is the head of God or the, the hood of God or something like that. So this heavenly council that is spoken in, in a lot of different of the papers that we're discussing is uh, something that I still struggle with because there are similarities in other religions where there's, if you look at um, the pantheon, the Greek pantheon of gods, a movie like Clash of Titans, in that movie, they portray a heavenly court of the gods of the Greeks. So you have Zeus and Athena and Poseidon or Neptune. You have all of them, and they're hanging out in, in the clouds, and they're talking about the will, uh, the faith of humankind. It's like the, the super friends or the Justice League. And to introduce that idea to people who study the Bible either from a Jewish or Christian perspective, it is a little difficult because although you see some of that in the book of Job where the adversary goes and challenges God to a duel per se regarding the, the outcome of, of Job and his life, uh, to think that there are 
that there's these um, people talking to God and kind of making decisions. Like it is uh, portrayed in the book of Revelation as a real thing. But um, again, it's just something that, that I hadn't thought about. We're talking about this idea of the heavenly council. They say there's even that within Islam. If God has uh, multiple people that work for him, so there is um, employees of God that can go and do his bidding. And that's what the angels were supposed to do originally. Let me explain what the book of uh, Revelation says. Uh, the book of Revelation is made up of multiple apparitions of Jesus. It starts off with Jesus appearing to John of Patmos or one of the Johns that followed Jesus. He uh, is being told, it sounds like he's incarcerated, and he's being told that there are seven congregations that are being judged by Jesus as either faithful or not faithful enough to his message. There's angels and stars and candelabra or gives menorot or menorahs, and there's all different things that appear. Then you have um, Jesus um, taking John uh, up to the heavens, and there in the heavens he sees a vision of the different um, thrones, and there's 12 elders who worship God. And in that version, because I believe there's a more ancient version, they also bow down before uh, Jesus that is represented as a lamb. And it's interesting that you only see the term lamb of God being used in the book of John, Gospel of John. So maybe it is the same John um, who wrote this one. You start seeing all these apocalyptic stuff about how the wrath is coming from heaven against earth and there's different monsters that come out of the, the waters. It's very similar to the book of I believe it's secular Zechariah and different animals or uh, uh, chimeras, uh, monsters that have the multiple heads or they're made up of different parts of different animals. They have significance. And then there's persecution of the saints, uh, which some people think that it was of Christians during Nero or it was like a projected idea that Christians or Jewish followers of Jesus would be destroyed by the pagan rulers around them. So um, the book of Revelation is interesting because it uh, addresses things that uh, there are more Jewish in nature, like worshiping idols, eating on kosher food, it, um, even the way that the wrath is being poured from heaven against the wicked. Yeah, it sounds like in the book of Isaiah says that God is like a, a warrior who uh, dips uh, his body in the blood of his enemies, like you do with grapes when they turn into wine. So it's not the typical meek Jesus that you see in the Gospels. It's actually a warrior Jesus who comes to bring uh, vengeance on the enemies of God. So that's that shows that there are different versions or these different visions or how Jesus uh, represents himself to the world. There are some issues there in relation to who is sitting on the throne and who is worshipped. But overall, the book of Revelation is very Jewish in its flavor um, compared to other apocalyptic works that do not mention Jesus.
the reason I bring this up if we're talking about the Trinity is that when Christians uh, make their case for the Trinity, they forget that in the book of Revelation there is. The Spirit is not mentioned much other than I guess you can say it could be one of the angels or something like that. And then it changes uh, like focus really quick. It goes from speaking to an angel to speaking to Jesus to speaking to uh, God directly or something like that. So there's a lot of strange stuff happening that is hard to to define or uh, make a, a very strong argument for. For those who are who are following our discussion regarding this, I just want you to understand that it's a very complicated thing, and that anybody that claims they understand the nature of God is mistaken because it is uh, in Judaism it teaches that. The revelation is something that was given to Moses and the children of Israel, and they had the ability to prophesy. They had the ability to walk with God and hear his voice. We have only glimpses of that. In Judaism, the prophets had a a vision of God. The mystics had a glimpse of God, and we only have a tiny little uh, once-in-a-while peek at God and his nature. So we as modern men and women, we have limited capacities compared to the great giants that we stand on. So it's arrogant to say, oh, I understand how God relates to different beings or manifestations or particular individuals who had a close relationship to him. And there's been simply people throughout history who have had that type of uh, capacity. You know, we were talking about Jewish um uh, Theology, we're talking about the Judaism of Jesus' followers. Uh, and then um, I saw a video online called uh, The Jewish Trinity. And I, I was very uh, disturbed by it because it was the typical Christian way of defining God and, and describing him. And it was just wrapped into this type of, the guy's a scholar, so I'll give him that. But he was wrapping it into you know, Jewish evangelism and the Jews don't understand their own God and the rabbis never taught the people the truth. Let me give you the truth. And it was the same, you know, six Bible passages where it's the spirit and there's God and then there's the son of God or some other type of Messiah figure. And they're making this huge case for a Jewish trinity. Well, instead of picking a fight with that scholar who, who brought that, I wanted to um, broadcast the, the lecture in a more open way where people can kind of at least uh, see where I'm coming from. So I labeled it uh, the Trinity and Biblical Theology. People feel that their version or their understanding of uh, what it says in the Bible is more accurate than what Judaism teaches. And one of them is one of the, um, I guess he did his dissertation, I don't know if it's a PhD or a master's in uh, in religion. Uh, his name is Paul Sobner. And he says, he quotes uh, Shia Cohen, who's a, a Jewish scholar, that says that modern Jewish understanding of God is not what ancient Jew, uh, Jewish understanding of God was. So this is the quote, the Radical monotheism of Maimonides was rare even in the Middle Ages and is unattested in antiquity. So they're saying that modern Orthodox are saying that 
you know, Maimonides, you know, nailed it when he said, you know, God is, is one and that's it. There is no partners. There's nothing. They're saying that in biblical times or even uh, right before the Talmud, was, there was multiple um, presence of God or manifestations and they worked together. And that it's easy now to whitewash all that and say, no, 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 we never believed that. And that you can see that in the two powers in heaven uh, controversy that starts up in the Talmud where they say that Elijah ben Abuya saw the two powers or saw Metatron sitting on the throne and he thought there was two powers and he was called a heretic. But that before that, even in the book of Daniel, you see uh, the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne and then the Son of Man comes and he takes the throne or he, he takes the honor from the people. So that there, there was always this idea that there was a heavenly court and within that court, there was a viceroy or a representative of God that you could say either bore the name of God or acted as a representative of God. And that's where Christians get the idea that Jesus was the angel of the Lord. And when people saw God, they saw the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was a Christophany. It was a manifestation of God uh, through this vehicle of his son or his uh, somehow representative on earth. So it's almost like um, there's there's two, there's a God in heaven and there's a God on earth. And the God on earth manifests himself physically and the God in heaven uh, is stays transcendent. So it's this kind of like mystical thing that maybe there's a way to, to work it out within Jewish mysticism. But how do we put it all together? Because uh, we're not we're not questioning people's sincerity. We're not questioning people's desire to understand God. What we're questioning is the method that they're using to try to understand the God of Israel. So in, in my introduction to uh, the podcast version of this, I, I talk about how the church fathers had a worldview that did not jive with the worldview of the ancient sages of, of Israel. So if they're taking uh, the Jewish scriptures, which include um yeah, I guess to them it would include not only the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, but also the writings of the apostles of Jesus who were also Jewish. And they're interpreting them with methods and and other uh, modes of thinking that come from a Greco-Roman understanding. They are making things that are literal figurative. They're making things that are figurative literal. They are making uh, all kinds of different category mistakes because they are not uh, looking at it from this uh, Middle Eastern Jewish perspective. Uh, so we, we can go into Kabbalah and how things developed uh, regarding that, but just in a basic understanding of, uh, of Hebrew and of, of um, you know, ancient uh, Israelite uh, worldview, um, this idea that God is not... Uh, a multiplicity of uh, of persons does not uh, there's no evidence for that because it it goes against the whole point of, of a monotheistic faith how can you have one God that is revealed in three when that is not part of the theology to begin with so it's, it's like an added theology to an already established uh, concept I have two stories that I want to share with first one. In ancient times, there was a king who was loved by his subjects. 
But this king was not the only ruler. He shared the kingdom with his wife and son. His wife was, was called Lady Wisdom, and his son was called uh, the Chosen One who, who was meant to teach the people. One day, the subjects rebelled against the king and killed his son. He was so sad that he secluded himself, and his wife took over the kingdom, getting the few loyal subjects and a large group of foreigners who followed the teachings of the young man. It is believed he survived the insurrection and now lives in seclusion with his father. And I wrote this as, you know, how do Christians make sense of the Trinity? Uh, Michael Heiser, who was the guy who uh, I'm debating on this, uh, this, this program, is, um, kept on saying that the Holy Spirit was Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs, so now, not only is God male as the Father, now there's female God, who's Lady Wisdom. And then Jesus, although he's not considered to be the offspring of both of them, he becomes almost like the third you know, version of God. So you have the old man God, the lady uh, nurturing God, and then you have the, the young warrior or meek uh, teacher or Messiah. And that's how they see it. They see it that once the Messiah left, then the Holy Spirit took over, and the Holy Spirit is the one who's getting the church. And the Catholics say that, you know, the Holy Spirit is with them and not with anybody else and stuff like that. So that's how they justify this multiplicity of God within itself, that there's three people in relationship with one another. So not only are we talking about the Trinity and the nature of God from a Jewish perspective, we're going to take it to the next level, and um, in, there's a... There's a commentary that I did on the book by Rabbi Bejarano Gutierrez on Jesus' uh, Jewish followers uh, of how you have to look into the sources of what the original followers of Jesus believe as compared to what is told by to us by Jewish history. So I want to, I'll give you the first parable and kind of explain why I think this is important. So um, once there was a king who wanted to connect with his subjects, he sent many messengers to share his decrees and the people under his care heeded to his instructions. By living out these mandates, they became more and more like their ruler. Every once in a while, some of them squandered his teachings or even set up competing outposts against the king. He was compassionate most of the time, but sometimes he had to crush his opponents for the sake of keeping the kingdom unblemished. His kingdom was attacked by foreign powers many times, but he and his subjects overcame many adversities. Until a vast empire rose against the king, they burned down the palace, took the people captive, and the king went into exile. His subjects are now scattered around the world and slowly have been building the kingdom in the land where the palace once stood. The king loves them and supports their efforts, but the empire who destroyed his heritage often maligns him and his followers, claiming that they are of no relevance or value to the world. So to me, this is how the world sees Jews. So there's one God, and he built a kingdom of priests and, and uh, holy people, and that he wanted that to be a light unto the nations. And then through different exiles and different conflicts, it kind of lost some of its impetus, and then now is slowly regathering through the great exile the last dozen years and becoming a nation again. So... That's the Jewish perspective on what's going on. Even God himself is a 
a God who is deeply involved with his people. Connect both parables. So in one, God has a, uh, a kingdom that has multiple leaders in it. And in the other one, God is the only king, and his subjects and him are united at the hip. In the Christian one, God is united to his people through the Holy Spirit, but there's not, like, there is some, some disconnect there. Uh, so I believe the followers of Jesus had a, a middle ground, and this is where I'm going with this. So this is the third parable. There was a king who was an old man and decided to give his kingdom to his son, who was a young warrior. The son decided to disguise himself as a beggar and travel from town to town speaking about the wisdom of his father. The people loved him at first, but then became jealous of him through his vast knowledge. He was arrested and tortured, left for dead. He overcame his injuries and gathered a vast army, but decided to delay his return to avenge his father's honor. He is still awaiting to return and destroy his enemies. However, his father, who is compassionate, keeps telling him to wait a little longer, hoping the people will rise above their animal passions and one day join them in reigning the world together. Is there a connection between Second Temple Judaism and the early Jesus movement? And how does that look like? And according to this parable, now you have uh, a God who is delegating power to this um, some type of prophet, sage, spiritual um, descendant of God. There's different ways that people look at it. But if that is true, then how does that relate to the people who are experiencing that? Because they came from a deeply monotheistic perspective. And I, I will take uh, Dr. Heiser to a challenge that he claims that Jews all believed in some type of double or triple uh, God entity at that time. And I don't really see that. So if they were open to, to the Messiah having some type of connection to the divine, that does not mean that the Messiah himself is uh, God in the flesh. And that is the major contention that I would have. But if there is some type of mystical thing, then we can unwrap it just looking at what they believe, not only in some of the books of the New Testament, but in other books that come from the Jewish Christians of that time or the disciples of James, whatever you want to call them. Well, and there is something about, you know, if we're made in the image of God and we have his essence within us, there is... Uh, a way for us to reconnect with that. And if you have the, the typical Western perspective that we're all sinful sinners who uh, are completely not only cursed and kind of like dismissed by God because of our sin, then where does the connection come from? And they've made it such a narrow perspective that only the people who are willing to accept this very complicated uh, the demanding perspective are the ones who will ever be enlightened and given hope and life by God, then they're really uh, painting such a gloomy picture that is that is depressing. This is everybody is condemned. Only the few who, who truly love Jesus are in. And to me, that doesn't work. I think God is a compassionate God, a, a slow to anger, abounding in love, and that his purpose is for us to reconnect with our true nature which is one that comes from the creator. So I've heard in mystical circles that it's not that God had a son, it's that God has many children, and those are all of us, that we are God's offspring 
So it's not radical for someone to say, I'm the son of God. What's radical is to say, I'm the only son of God or the only person who has that type of relationship. But then in the same text, they says that he builds a bridge for people to be able to have the same relationship that he does with God, with all of us. So it's just, uh, again, very complex and very, at times even convoluted, where it's hard to make ends of tales of all these narratives and perspectives.